Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us for the uh, Closing Fund Leverage panel. Uh, we're, we're going to cover some of the key trends that we've been following in the, in the Closing Fund uh, Leverage market uh, and uh, talk a little bit about the outlook uh, for the coming year. Uh, my name is uh, Greg Favlevich. I head up the uh, U.S. Funds team at uh, Fitch Ratings. Uh, we assign ratings to uh, debt and preferred shares issued by close-end funds. Um, and we, uh, we do uh, research on, the, on some of the key trends in the sector. And uh, we have a great panel today, so I'll let the, uh, the panelists introduce themselves. Brian, you want to start? I'm Brian Knutson. I'm an associate director with the funds team at Fitch Ratings. Uh, my name is Amit Jain. I'm a director in the Financial Institutions Investment Banking Group with Wells Fargo Securities. Hi, my name is Mark Kelly. I'm a director at BlackRock on the portfolio oversight team that oversees the operations and administration of closed-end funds. My name is Andrew Kleeman. I'm a managing director at Bearings. I work in the private debt group. We provide uh, fixed-rate financing for closed-end funds. Okay, thanks. Uh, before we start, I uh, just want to say uh, the slides are available at, uh, at Fitch's desk outside, uh, so you can grab a copy. If we're out of copies, uh, you can just leave your, uh, your card uh, over there or uh, talk to me. I'm happy to, uh, uh, to send you the slides afterwards. Uh, as I mentioned, Fitch also puts out a lot of research on the sector, and we have a, uh, an email distribution list, so if you want to be on, uh, on the list, if you want to get our uh, research, again, drop your card at our desk or uh, you know, talk to me or to Brian. We're happy to add you to the, uh, to the list. So, okay, so uh, just starting at a very high level, uh, this slide shows the, uh, the leverage ratios across the sector. Uh, on the right side, you have uh, municipal funds. Um, and on, on the left side, you have the um, taxable funds. Uh, so generally, so leverage ratios are the, the amount of leverage that the funds have divided by essentially total assets. Uh, so leverage ratios across the closing funds are uh, limited by a number of factors. You have regulatory limits, uh, rating agency methodologies, uh, uh, covenants in, um, uh, in debt or preferred documentation, and of course the funds uh, own risk management uh, practices. You can see that uh, municipal closing funds, uh, generally they, they cluster around uh, like the high 30s or low 40s percent in terms of leverage ratios. For taxable funds, there's a bit more of a, of a, a wider range, um, though they also cluster around the 30 percent. Uh, to get to, to leverage ratios that are above the, um, the SEC's limits of 33 percent or, uh, or 50 percent for debt and preferred shares, uh, you can use uh, um, other forms of leverage that the SEC doesn't count in the same way. So, for example, uh, reverse repos or derivatives. This is just a quick overview of uh, Fitch's ratings. As I mentioned, we assign ratings to debt and preferred shares issued by closed-end funds. Um, <clears throat> the, the historical credit performance of these leverage forms uh, really supports the high level of ratings. You can see that a lot of the ratings are in the AAA uh, range. There's some uh, AA and single A. Um, we, we first updated our methodology uh, after the crisis in 2009, incorporating the experience from the crisis. And since then, our, our rating methodology has been very stable. Uh, we review it every year, uh, looking to see if the, the haircuts we assign to different asset classes are still relevant. Uh, but, and, and we'll make the tweaks when we need to, but uh, the, the framework has really been very stable. Uh, we do like the, uh, this sector, and we're, we're committed to, uh, to this sector. As I mentioned, we, we put out a lot of research, and we uh, uh, try to maintain the, the context in the, in the sector and, and talk to investors 
uh, and um, and the bankers to understand kind of what what are trends that are uh, important, uh, what things we should be focused on, um, and you know I think some of the the key key things that have supported the credit performance of debt and preferred shares that close in funds issue are uh, deleveraging mechanisms and um, asset coverage requirements. So, for example, in the 1940 Act, as I mentioned, uh, there's a 33% leverage ratio, uh, ratio limit for debt, a 50% limit for preferred shares, uh, and funds have to abide by these even during times of stress, and, and, and that has really helped them um, um, maintain a strong credit performance. Okay, now so uh, on to the actual trends we've observed um, over the last year and, and six months. Uh, the data is broken by, uh, by six months period because of the way closing funds report their financials, and this is where this data is coming from. So uh, over, the last, over the last six months, we've seen a, uh, the first increase in the nominal amount of leverage in taxable funds uh, after a couple of periods of declines in, uh, in leverage. Uh, so, alternative, Brian, can you talk a little bit about the, uh, what are the key drivers uh, uh, to, to the changes in leverage? Yeah, so I, I guess I'll first start with year over year with the second half of 2015 versus second half of 2016. We saw a pretty large decline in leverage utilized by the taxable sector. This is primarily driven uh, by the volatility in the energy sector. Uh, so we saw a total decline of $3.5 billion, and MLP funds accounted for $2.5 billion of this decline. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the MLP funds and their deleveraging on the next slide. Uh, but in terms of actual increase in issuance, uh, year over year, we did see some equity funds issue preferred shares, uh, which was a positive note. Uh, and then moving on to the past six months, um, we did see a pretty large increase. Uh, this is approximately $1.9 billion, and primarily done via bank facilities and reverse repos. Uh, the high-yield corporate asset class was the main sector of this, ac accounting for $600 million. Um, and <clears throat> we can talk a bit about the MLP issuance throughout, throughout the past six months on the next slide as well. Okay. Thanks. And um, Amit, so can you talk a little bit from your perspective? You, you talked to a lot of fund managers uh, and the investors. Uh, where's the demand for uh, kind of new leverage, maybe new structures? Yeah, so we have a lot of conversations, and they've increased in uh, number in recent months um, with, with fund issuers around the idea of diversifying their existing source of leverage. And per this graph, most of that tends to be through bank debt right now, particularly uh, on the issuers that we've been having conversations with, diversifying leverage through uh, an addition of a preferred share sleeve. And that can be either executed in the public uh, retail preferred market or through the private placement market. I think uh, the concept that we uh, have conversations around or that our pitch to the issuers around this idea is, one, you diversify your funding sources. And later in the presentation, we talk about who the largest providers of bank debt to close down funds are. Uh, but it's obviously a, a potential benefit to diversify uh, where you're sourcing your, your leverage and your capital structure from. Second, it's, you know, the, the long end of the Treasury curve remains relatively uh, at low yield levels. So um, despite the pickup that we've seen in Treasury rates since uh, the election, we're still at relatively low levels. And while the front end of the curve continues to tick up, meaning that the, the, the pricing of bank debt is likely to tick up in concert with that, there's still an opportunity, an attractive opportunity to long, lock in, whether it's 5, 7, 10, 12-year type leverage 
through those, those two markets that I mentioned. So it's really a story of diversifying and taking advantage of where rates are, uh, particularly if you have a view that rates on the long end are going to continue to rise. Um, the one additional comment I'd make is that through optimizing your blend of senior or bank debt in the leverage uh, in the capital structure with a sh uh, sleeve of preferred shares, you can also potentially, depending upon how you balance those two, increase your buffer relative to your 40 Act asset coverage limit. So let's just say you were a manager that had 30% leverage all through bank debt. You're managing, managing that against a limit of 33 and a third. So that gives you a little bit of cushion, but our presentation would be, why don't you add in a sleeve of preferreds? Uh, suddenly you're reducing your amount of bank leverage, so your distance from that 33 and a third is greater. And now your total leverage, whether you stay, stay at the same level or even potentially increase your overall leverage, that combination is measured against a 44.4% or 45% or 50% depending upon which market you execute in. But either way, you're creating a little bit more buffer relative to potentially forced uh, selling of securities into a weak market. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Mark, you manage the leverage for, uh, for BlackRock closing funds. Can you talk about what are some of the considerations from the fund management perspective, you know, in terms of the types of leverage, the amounts, how you manage them over time? Yeah, thank you. And you know, diversification of leverage is very important, uh, and the different types of leverage are really dictated by the collateral that's in the funds and the fund's objectives. Uh, you know, so you, you're based on what type of leverage you can offer. Uh, you know, repo and bank debt do give the funds a more flexible form of leverage uh, that can be taken on and taken off as markets dictate. Um, so I, I think you need to look at the whole gamut of leverage and find out what meets your fund's objectives uh, and what is cost effective um, for the uh, shareholders of the fund. Thanks, Greg. Okay. And Andy, you're kind of on the other side. So you buy um, some of the, you know, the debt and preferred shares uh, issued by taxable closing funds. Can you talk about uh, kind of your, your perspective? You know, what are some of the key, key considerations you look at and maybe where you, have, uh, you see some demand? Yeah, we've, we've been purchasing uh, in this asset class since 2007. Uh, you know, when the auction rate market started to dry up, uh, some of the, particularly the MLP closed-in funds, looked for other sources of capital and uh, got familiar with it, certainly. Uh, since 2007, a lot more insurance companies uh, are the primary participants in the private placement market. More and more have come into the market, and it's gotten more and more competitive. Um, we think it's attractive. Uh, a, it benefits from strong ratings, uh, which I think accurately reflect the potential for loss, which, uh, you know, the 40 Act and, uh, and, and the structure behind the, the documentation provides a very robust structure. Uh, and really what we're looking for is liquid assets that are transparently priced. Uh, unlike corporate lending, which is more cash flow based, this is much an, very much an asset coverage game. And so uh, the frequency of the testing, which is pretty standard under Pitch's methodology, uh, and, and the liquidity and transparency of the underlying assets are kind of the critical components in our analysis. So now, diving a little bit deeper, we talked about the, uh, the MLP sector. Certainly, it's experienced a lot of stress over the last, uh, uh, last two years, uh, stabilized um, more recently. Um, so, uh, Brian, can you talk about how 
uh, MLP closing funds reacted to the declines in, in valuations you know, from the perspective of their leverage? Yeah, so as we all know, there was pretty significant declines in the MLP sector at the end of 2015 and early 2016 uh, when we were sitting up here last year. Basically, just in, at the decline of that, the, the bars in that chart. <clears throat> um, since then, well, going back, the MLP managers had pretty much bought, brought down the majority, their, well, a large amount of their leverage, starting first with the bank lines because they're the most flexible, and then moving on to debt and the notes and preferred shares that they had outstanding. Since then, we've seen a somewhat of a rebound in stabilization in asset prices, but we really haven't seen the same rebound in terms of leverage utilization. Uh, some funds have increased leverage usage, but gone to their existing credit facilities, which they had capacity on. Uh, but we also have seen a few funds issue preferred shares over the past year, and these funds were really only utilizing debt facilities prior to issuance, and it seemed that the main driver was to diversify funding in relation to 1940 Act covenants. Okay. And um, Andy, can you talk a little bit about your experience? So again, you, you, you held some of these through the, through the, the stress period. Um, you know, can, can you talk about uh, kind of your perspective during that time, and then since then, have there been any changes in terms or in the pricing, in term, you know, how you think about it? Yeah, in particular with the MLP closed-in funds here, you know, we've been through kind of two stress periods, the, the financial crisis and in 08, 09, and then uh, fourth quarter of 15 and first quarter of 2016. Um, I, I think this most recent experience is probably actually harder, uh, the, the financial crisis that all assets declined, and uh, then it seemed to come back pretty quick. Uh, this was kind of a slow, steady grind that was uh, pretty painful for everyone. Um, all the funds that we financed had bank revolvers. Those got paid down pretty quickly. And then uh, over this time, we got probably about $200 million of, of um, prepayments. Uh, our documents allow uh, some prepayments when certain asset coverages are hit, uh, which are necessary uh, to maintain the, the rating. Um, I would say we didn't necessarily lose any sleep. Obviously, we'd rather keep the money at work. Um, but the structure, we've seen it go through two stress periods, and it's worked as it's supposed to in both instances where the uh, MLP closed-in funds were able to access liquidity in the market to sell assets and repay debt. Um, from our perspective, um, we've seen some, on the preferred shared side, uh, we've seen some funds... Um, based on concentration levels, choose to move their uh, preferred ratings down to a, a single A instead of the double A range, um, which will probably have a pricing impact uh, for them in the future. Uh, we, we still are comfortable um, with those funds, though. And I think the other outcome of this is maybe more um, reflection on, I guess, the option cost of the Redemptions at 101 and 102 that are built into the structure. And I think that uh, what we experience in the MLP sector with closing funds is, is actually a really good um, uh, kind of example or test case of um, some things we've, we've been talking about. Or um, so, you know, for what I mentioned from a credit perspective, the mechanisms actually worked as expected. You know, when the funds were hitting the, their uh, coverage test, they started delevering. Um, Mark talked about uh, the importance of maintaining flexible. Uh, leverage like bank lines, so that would be the first line of defense. And then um, Amit mentioned uh, having kind of a, a more diversified capital structure 
although adding the preferred gives you a little bit more cushion. So, so we've seen all these things kind of work together uh, in, in this experience. And I think, um, you know, essentially we all came out, um, came out well, at least from the, the debt and preferred perspective. Okay, so now moving on to uh, municipal closing funds. <clears throat> uh, more stable uh, over time uh, you know, than the uh, taxable closing funds. Uh, we have seen a bit of an increase in leverage over the last six months. Uh, Brian, can you touch on that? Yeah, so throughout early and mid-2016, municipals did outperform. As the asset values increased, uh, the leverage ratios across the, the municipal sector uh, were ticking down. Uh, some managers took advantage of refinancings to basically increase their preferred share issuance. Uh, so we did see increases in VMTPs of approximately $800 million, approximately $550 million increase in VRDPs issued. And we also did see an increase of about $700 million issued in tender option bonds. Okay. And, uh, Mark, are there different considerations for municipal closing funds, you know, compared to taxables? Yeah, there's certainly uh, different considerations for municipals versus taxables. Uh, so municipals are concentrated heavily in preferred securities. Preferred securities allow the municipals to pass through tax-exempt dividends to the holders of the preferred securities, where debt instruments are, are considered taxable or interest expense. Uh, so you see a lot of preferred issuance in the municipal security types. Uh, in the chart, you can see that it's been relatively constant from a TOBS perspective. Uh, so TOBS uh, add the flexible form of leverage to a municipal, secure, uh, municipal fund. Uh, preferred shares have an issuance amount, um, and that's relatively stagnant. Uh, and you can go up and down on leverage much easier with tender option bonds. Uh, there have been some regulation changes around tender option bonds, but the industry has been managing around those over the last couple years uh, due to some restrictions put in through the bulk rules, et cetera. And this is just a slightly different view of uh, leverage issuance of, uh, of debt and preferred, well, I guess preferred shares mostly in the uh, municipal closing fund sector. Uh, so as, as Brian mentioned, there's been a significant uh, amount of issuance in the last, uh, last year, uh, but a lot of it is driven by uh, refinancing and, uh, you know, mostly tied to mergers. Okay, uh, maybe just going into a little bit of detail here, uh, VRDP terming out. So VRDP is one of the main sources of uh, leverage for municipal closing funds. Uh, essentially, they're, uh, well, they're preferred shares. They have a uh, uh, initially structured with a, an optional a put, uh, put feature, and then they're sold to money market funds. Um, so the, these uh, securities have a fairly long history, a couple of years here. Uh, initially, they're mostly placed with money funds. Then over time, what we're trying to show here, uh, because of uh, uh, cost consideration, kind of uh, bank availability, uh, and then more recently, money fund reform, uh, fund managers have started terming these out. So that means instead of uh, having, having it sit in a money fund and the security is remarketed every week, uh, the bank uh, generally that provided a liquidity uh, facility before will just hold the securities for, uh, for a couple of years uh, for, for a uh, uh, spread over SIFMA. So kind of similar in a way to the, the VMTPs. Um, and you can see that the market for uh, market share in terms of liquidity providers is fairly diverse. Uh, it kind of, you know, obviously differs by managers, but it shows there's definitely, definitely interest from the banking community in providing this type of financing to, uh, to municipal closing funds. And termed up VRDP is 287 eligible, so there was a large market. Uh, but they did have short-term liquidity exposure that was tied to the banks. 
Uh, and when banks' ratings were challenged, then that would change the rating on the VRDP, and, and you saw a significant number of VRDP become termed out VRDP, uh, which only need long-term ratings versus a short-term liquidity rating. Okay. So now moving on to uh, to costs. Um, so we're showing here the the average costs uh, for uh, for tax exempt uh, closed-end funds, and then some of the ranges. Again, it, it varies quite widely because of the the differences in reporting and uh, in the terms of the underlying securities, you know, maturities and, and things like that. Um, Brian, can you talk a little bit about uh, where we've seen some of the, the key changes and what are the drivers in terms of the costs, you know, between last year and last period and what we see now. Uh, yeah, so basically all these instruments are either tie or trade in line with SIFMA. Um, I'm not going to drive into each, 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 uh, each instrument, but basically yeah, SIFMA has increased over the past year. It was about 40 basis points last April to 90 today. We've seen a corresponding increase in costs uh, for municipal fund leverage. And this is basically driven by the Fed hike Fikes and also um, money market reform, which drove assets out of municipal money market funds, which have traditionally been the primary buyers for VRDPs, uh, and and how uh, SIFMA is actually set. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean VRDP VMTP uh, cost of financing has been relatively static over the last handful of years since the securities have come out. Uh, there have been some changes to tender option bonds due to banking regulations that have impacted. The, uh, the cost of financing there. Um, but overall, it's been a relatively static um, impact from, the, from regulation. And then moving on to the taxable side, um, again, uh, these are some of the average costs and, and the ranges we see. Brian, can you talk there about some of the changes you've seen? Yeah, so on the taxable side, I'll split it out into uh, the short-term and long-term financing. On the short-term side, these are all tied to short-term rates, and as the Fed has hiked, we've seen corresponding increases to taxable closed-end funds, um, and these basically all flow through to the financial statements that they file with the SEC. Um, as for the longer-term financing, there hasn't been a ton of issuance over the past year and a half, two years. Uh, MLP funds were, have been a large driver over the past five years of the uh, term note and preferred shares on the taxable side. Uh, but from the issuance that we have seen recently, especially those, those post uh, the election, uh, there has been an, an increase in yield, uh, but they basically correspond with the increase in Treasury yields that we've seen post-election. And Amit, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen uh, in, in the sure. cost of taxable uh, issuance? Absolutely. And that's exactly what Brian just went through is exactly the reason why we're uh, having conversations with issuers around taking advantage of that very dynamic. Your short-term costs are increasing, and if you believe the LIBOR forward curve, they're going to continue to increase for the, for the next uh, several quarters. Um, whereas in the meantime, your fixed rate uh, preferreds or senior notes um, those have, again, tied their price as a, as a spread to Treasury. So the break-evens, uh, again, if you believe what the forward curve tells you, the break-even to uh, terming out and getting some term and diversity and additional buffer relative to your 40 Act coverage limits, um, all of these things are lining up in a way that they really hadn't over the past several years. So um, what Brian just went through is exactly the reason why we think it's advantageous for issuers right now to think about putting in some term into the capital structure and potentially hedge against uh, uh, what may be a good long-term decision to hedge against uh, rising short-term rates. And then 
Andy, from your perspective, does a, a rising rate environment change at all how you think about, you know, pricing these? The short answer is no. So our clients are uh, life insurance companies. They're looking for long duration. We tend to think of pricing on a spread basis, uh, and they're using asset liability matching. So they're comparing the spread that they're putting new assets on to the spread that they're writing new uh, insurance policies at. Uh, and, and we're absolutely a buy-and-hold investor. Once it's on the books, it's unlikely, uh, particularly in this area, that, w that we would ever consider s selling it. Um, you know, so it, the, the private placement market is a competitive market. There's a number of, of strong buyers out there, um, which tends to lead to a, a fairly consistent idea on where it should be because there's historically always been, you know, that last deal, and then you kind of look at what's happened in the market since that deal. Um, I think we're probably unique in that we tend to use as, as a rough benchmark uh, equivalently rated CLO tranches, which kind of give you a sense. There's uh, a fair amount of similarities between financing a closed-end fund and, and financing on a CLO, although there are some material differences as well. Um, you know, for us, the rising rates where we're really going to see an impact is issuing likely shorter tenor debt. Um, the early deals we did in 07, 08, uh, tended to be three to five years with lower interest rates. The MLP funds, due to the, the distribution rate off of the underlying MLPs uh, being so high, allowed them to issue longer tenor debt, uh, 7, 10, 12, even, I think, in one case, a 15-year uh, fixed-rate note. Um, and so, obviously, higher rates are going to make that uh, harder for issuers, and they're more likely to issue shorter, shorter tenor debt. Okay. Thank you. All right. So big, a big portion of the uh, financing to taxable closing funds come from the uh, from bank counterparties. Uh, in, in this table, we're we're just showing um, some the largest counterparties. Uh, the mix hasn't changed all that much uh, over the last couple of years. We're uh, we have we have seen some reshuffling of exposures. Um, I would some banks, you know, maybe finding uh, the sector not as economical. Uh, that we've seen others uh, enter the space. Uh, either uh, here we're talking about taxable financing, but uh, we showed the, the slide on VRDP uh, in that market as well. Um, it is a concentrated market. Um, and so, you know, we've seen some changes in the, uh, in the terms of, uh, of the financial financing that uh, banks provide. Uh, so particularly in the undrawn commitment uh, fee. So we, we've seen, you know, it's a, it's a fixed fee generally, and we've seen those fees increase over the last uh, couple of periods. Uh, we think that's driven by uh, bank regulatory changes where it's, it's more expensive for banks uh, to provide kind of a contingency uh, liquidity. Um, in at least one case, we've seen uh, the undrawn commitment fee move from a flat fee to a LIBOR-based fee. Uh, and then there's also uh, some provisions around uh, kind of utilization or, or triggers. So, for example, if uh, the fund is not is utilizing the uh, the credit facility below a certain amount, uh, then the bank will charge a higher rate for the undrawn commitment fee. Uh, so, to to incentivize the funds uh, to use you know full or close to full um, uh, amount of the facility. Uh, and I mean. Do you, do you want to talk about uh, you know some of the some of the issues you're seeing here, or kind of what fund managers are thinking about? With sure. Um, I guess my my comment, uh, and I pose this to all the issuers in the room, is um, you know how how do they all feel, or how do you all feel about um, 
the availability, uh, particularly the availability at the current pricing mechanism uh, of those, uh, that first column of direct facility loan margin lines um, as bank regulatory rule, capital rules uh, continue to, to work their way through and become implemented uh, both here and abroad. Uh, I guess my question would be, uh, again, how, do, how does that, does that change pricing and availability? Does it not? Does it make it more expensive? Um, do any of these providers step away? Um, I know, uh, you know, we have Bank of America listed here, and I think that this number, if we were to compare it to what they had on this table three or four years ago, it's a lot smaller, much, uh, much reduced number. Um, so it's really just something to keep in the back of the, the minds in terms of where, uh, where, where is availability long term um, for that product? And uh, again, it kind of plays into the concept of diversification. Um, and uh, perhaps we see new entrants into this market, um, whether they be foreign or other US banks, all, all questions that uh, uh, people are thinking about and should be top of mind. Thank you. We have a couple of slides here about uh, performance. Uh, so obviously a lot of people have uh, uh, the price and the NAV charts. We also added the, uh, the leverage ratios uh, kind of over time. Uh, we're not going to go through, through all of these. Uh, again, remember some of it is chunky because of the way funds report, but I think it still goes, uh, gives a pretty good idea of where funds manage or leverage. Uh, so again, you can look at these um, on the slide later. And as I mentioned, Fitch which has a distribution list, so if you want to be added, um, just let us know. And one more thing we, we kind of talked about, um, you know, we've talked about earlier in an earlier session about uh, IPOs and, and term trust. Um, Amit, you're close to that side as well. Can you talk about that and how that, you know, in the relation to leverage and what we might expect from funds? Yeah, um, sure. So obviously there was a great panel uh, earlier today talking about the new target term trusts that have been raised in the market and trading extremely well. Um, so uh, we're hopeful that that continues to be the case. I think uh, the case that I was making earlier about diversifying the, the capital structure, uh, obviously that means taking on some higher cost leverage into the capital structure. It's a little harder to make that, make that argument at IPO because obviously uh, uh, probably the, the path to getting public is helped by having a higher distribution rate, which means the lowest cost financing option that's available. But uh, we have seen some issuers and are in conversations with some issuers around uh, launching new funds that actually do have a more diversified capital structure and do have a sleeve of preferreds and, in, uh, and may have a, a leverage point that's north of uh, most IPOs that you'll see. So. You know, call it a 35, 36, 37 percent total leverage. So um, I think it's it's harder to make the case to a new fund relative to a seasoned fund that perhaps has more embedded gains and and the wherewithal to withstand a higher overall uh, cost of funding. Um, but it's something that we're starting to see move uh, slowly but surely. Okay, thank you. Uh, and we have a little bit of time, so uh, one topic we we kept kind of for the end. We've seen a little bit of a decline in uh, financing from ABCP conduits. Brian, can you talk about that a little bit and what's driving that? Yeah, so <clears throat> at the end of 2015, the end of 2016, we saw about a billion dollar decline in utilization of ABC conduits by closed end funds. Uh, we expect this to further decline. Uh, there were some issuances in later this, uh, this past year to replace borrowings from ABC conduits. It seems as if they're not as willing to provide leverage to closed end funds, um, whether that's due to regulatory pressures or, or cost pressures. Uh, but we do expect that number to continue to roll down um, as these, the 
maturities on preferred shares that were placed with ABC conduits and uh, the, the facilities, uh, the maturities on the facilities uh, come to an end and not, are not rolled over or extended. And, and generally, in, in a couple of cases, fund managers uh, kind of came up with new types of structures to replace those ABCP conduits. Um, so we have a couple of minutes for, uh, for Q&A. Um, if anybody has any questions. Uh, well, in that case, I'd like to uh, to thank the panel, and uh, it's really <laughs>